7 a.m. on the West Coast, 10 a.m. on the East Coast. It's 2 p.m. in London, 11 p.m. in Kyoto, Japan. And in Malaysia, it's 1987. I'm Jay Shelton, and I'm not wearing pants. Hello, welcome, 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 welcome. Happy Wednesday. It is Wednesday. It is the day before public holiday here in Malaysia, and probably in several other countries too. Tomorrow is Deepavali, which is the Indian uh, Festival of Lights. And as a matter of fact, where's my... uh, Hang on. Here we go. This uh, is the, the company that I work with. Uh, Studio Voxel. This is their Deepavali greeting, so I thought that would be a nice way to celebrate Deepavali. The neighbors, however, I live in a, a pretty multiracial community. We have Malay folks, Chinese folks, Indian folks, Matsales, <laughs> and uh, we, we've got a, a rojak of, of culture in this neighborhood. So we get a lot of celebrations, and in this country, celebrations equals fireworks. Uh, Merdeka, Hari Raya, Chinese New Year, of course, and Deepavali. Well, I have a neighbor up on the corner, a great Indian family, very nice people, and they are celebrating tonight. So my studio is in the upper floors of my house, off in a corner, and you will, I guarantee it, hear some fireworks tonight. Um, so happy Deepavali to those of you who celebrate, and even if you don't, happy Deepavali anyway. Um, yeah, it's a great, great holiday, and um, very cool. So that is going on right now. As a matter of fact, I'm going to get right into this because she's sleeping at my feet. Miko update. Yeah, Miko update. Uh, Miko's doing well. She's uh, back and recovered. She's eating. She, as a matter of fact, she used to eat about half of her food when we feed her twice a day. She would eat half, leave half, and then pick through it over the next hour or so. She is wolfing down everything. Everything. Uh, we put it in her dish. She eats it completely. And uh, she's been doing very, very well Uh tearing up the neighborhood, having a great time. And uh, she is not a fan of fireworks. So tonight, Deepavali Eve is certainly going to be a nightmare for her. In fact, she's sleeping at my feet right now. I can't get a camera down there. Um, and I don't want to disturb her. I'll, I'll see if I can't pick her up, get her on the screen. But she's uh, she's hanging out. Hang on, Miko. Let me see if I can... Can I bother you for a minute? You want to come up and say hi? Come here. Come here. My squeaky chair. There she is. There she is. Hey, girl. There you go. It's been a long time since you've been on the the live stream, huh? Can you say hi? Look up there. Hey. Look up there. See? That's you. Aren't you pretty? You're so beautiful. (laughs) she is uh she is a little frightened because of the fireworks tonight there were some big ones that went off very close Uh, you can kind of tell the look on her face 
She's not the happiest little Shiba Inu in the world. Ichiko Mikoto. But you are beautiful. huh? Everybody out there says hi. By the way, if you're chatting on anything besides Twitch, I may or may not see your chat. I've got a multi-chat stream on the side. But for some reason, there were a bunch of chats I got uh, last stream on Monday that I never saw. So I'm sorry if I don't acknowledge your chats. They should show up down here uh, on the screen, but I should also see them. And for some reason, I haven't been seeing them. I don't know why. So anyway, there's the little girl live, finally. It's been a long time since she came on live. And sadly tonight, it's because she's a little afraid of the fireworks. So, all right. You want to jump back down and go back to sleeping? Hmm. Oh, I know. You don't know what to expect, huh? I think you had enough drama for one night. Okay? All right. <laughs> Hang on. Squeaky chair time again while I let her down. All right. Be good, be. There you go. There you go, good girl. Oh, yes, I know. You want to come back up? <laughs> she just wants the company, I think. All right, you're a good girl. Let's get on with it. Oh, man. Wow. Well, we, uh, we, we start out with a, a little bit of kind of sad news tonight. Um, a, uh, a colleague from many, many years ago, uh, I never worked directly with him, but I had met him a few times. And uh, he was back when I was in the radio business, which I spent a great portion of my career in, in the uh, late 70s and 80s and at 90s, in fact, um, Brad Davis, who for many, many years worked at WDRC in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. I'm a Connecticut guy. And uh, he passed away. Uh, I believe it was yesterday, uh, the ripe old age of 87. Uh, this post from Rob Ray, who said, uh, I knew Brad since I was 12 years old. He was a wonderful man, treated me like a member of his family, truly a Connecticut radio legend. Indeed, he was. Uh, he's not suffering anymore. Says, I love you and will miss you terribly. R.I.P., sir. And uh, that is Brad Davis there. This is Rob Ray. And this post actually comes from a colleague of mine, Beth Bradley, who also worked with Brad. Uh, she and I worked together uh, back in the uh, U.S., uh, on WSNG for a long, long time. And uh, this post also from a dear friend and colleague of mine, Dan Lavallo, that's Dan there, and there is Brad. He and Dan worked together for many, many years, nearly 20 years, actually. He also, Dan also spent uh, maybe 10 or more years working side by side as uh, my newsman on my morning show. So, um, yeah, uh, sad day in uh, Connecticut, and in broadcasting history, uh, as we lose, uh, as we lose a great talent in uh, in Brad Davis. So, um, just wanted to tip the hat to Brad and and say goodbye, sir. Well, all right. What else we got going on tonight? Oh yeah, our uh, our thumbnail said global warming, climate change, whatever they're calling it these days. Mm, maybe, maybe not. We do, however, have a very big problem that is staring us right in the face, and this is something you really can't argue about because the evidence is everywhere. Now, I, I just want to spend 30 seconds about my opinion on climate change. My opinion on climate change is basically based on this. People look 
let me get my mouse back here. People look right here. Can you see my mouse? There you go. I'm sorry. If you're listening on the podcast, go to rumble.com or YouTube, Jay Sheldon, Jay Sheldon, no pants. Check out the video portion of our show because a lot of this is visual. Um, But thank you for listening on the podcast. A lot of people will take right here, this little area, and go, oh my God, look, the temperature. Whoa. But again, what you have to do is take a 64,000 feet up view of things and stretch this map out and take a look over history of the Earth. This goes all the way back to 2400 BC, before the Christian era. And it goes up and it goes down and it gets very warm and it gets very cold, the Grecian Empire. And the Roman Empire gets warmed up again and then the Dark Ages, it gets cold. Appropriate, isn't it? Medieval warm period, a little ice age, which was uh, 1845 or so. 18, uh, there you go. And we get to today. So while, yes, we don't know where that's going, you'll see that the Earth cycles through. It gets warm, it gets cold. In fact, according to this chart, we're about due for another big dip down. So we'll see. Um, But this is why I have my doubts about all the screaming and yelling about climate change or when global warming didn't work because it was starting to cool, then they had to make another argument and start calling it climate change. Okay. Look, you do you, I'll do me. This just happens to be what I believe when I zoom out and look at the big picture. If you zoom in and look at the, just the right hand part of that chart, you should be very afraid. But when you zoom out, not so much. All right. So, uh, however, having said that, we do have a problem. We have a big problem. And it looks like this. This is part of our ocean. This is a nightmare. That, by the way, is a scuba diver. Take a look at the relative size of this guy and look at this patch of absolute crap that we foolish people have put into our oceans. This is disgusting. Unbelievable. Incredible. I've got more coming up on this in just a bit. Let me just say hello to Mohanad, the mighty good day, my friends. Here's a fun fact. So begin your day. Slugs are just naked snails. (laughs) Yes, you are correct. Uh, Slugs are just snails that lost the house in the divorce, I'm afraid. And Luna Amethyst, hello to you. Nice to see you along for the ride once again. Hey, hey, and thank you. Thanks for jumping in. Um, all right, so let's get back to it now. This is the uh, the nightmare that we're dealing with, and it's real, and it is pervasive. It not only affects our oceans, but it affects Cindy Lee. Sandy Lee just subscribed to the stream. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, good to see you along. 
Excellent. Um, all right. So anyway, our oceans are a problem. Our riverways are a problem. Our ponds are a problem everywhere. Here in Malaysia, I've done shows on this in the past. I've mentioned it. I've done segments. If you go back several streams ago, you will see once people started to get out of lockdown and go out to the waterfalls, the kind of absolute idiocy these morons made in the form of litter, dirty used diapers, soda bottles, styrofoam tapau containers, all kinds of crap that these morons just throw on the side of the riverbanks and leave them there. Don't take their crap with them. And you people are idiots. You are morons. The people who do things like this are unbelievable. And we have a giant issue. Uh, the link to this is in our show notes. Cindy Lee. Hey, Cindy. Good to see you. Thanks for jumping in. Appreciate it. More than 63,000 pounds of trash have been removed from the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. We'll have more on this in just a bit. This picture is a half a mile long. That's almost a kilometer, I think, something like that, like 0.8 kilometers. A half a mile long trash trapping system, it's named Jenny, <laughs> was sent into the Pacific Ocean to collect waste from one of the biggest accumulations of plastic in the world this Pacific Ocean garbage stream. It is absolutely frightening. And this is just one of the hauls that this system, Jenny, has pulled out of that garbage patch. Man, yeah. Luna says, whoa. I'm bringing back Tatiana for a uh, for a eon. Uh, oh, a con, like a comic con you're going to in a few days. Cool. I love your Tatiana. Um, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch covers an area twice the size of Texas, two or three times the size of France. It is believed to... Oh, man. I just, this is just... It gets more incredible the more I read. It is believed to contain more than 1.8 trillion, that's trillion with a T, pieces of plastic from fishing nets to microplastics. That amounts to roughly 88,000 tons. For years, researchers believed it might be impossible to get this massive collection of debris that floats in the Pacific between Hawaii and California, uh, posing great danger to the marine environment there, of course. A nonprofit group, however, is proving them wrong. Good on you. Uh, a successful months-long effort to chip away at the patch. Um, this was the beginning of the end of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. This is a news conference these guys held. The Ocean Cleanup, developing a system to help clean up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, just finished a series of tests that proved it is in fact possible to gather plastic safely from the ocean. And they've organized the first large-scale cleanup. Uh, this is part of the crew that is working on this uh, cleanup of the garbage patch. This is just a very small sample of some of the crap that they have cleaned out of this place. Uh, here on one of the vessels of the ocean cleanup, just returned from the garbage patch in the Great Pacific, 
The stuff you find out there is real crazy, and he is uh, showing us some of it now. Here's just bins and bins of all kinds of things. Look at this. Fishing stuff, buoys, crates, and it just keeps coming. There's a milk crate. Uh, all different countries it floats in from. It's just unbelievable what a mess. Yeah, respect for these heroes. You're exactly right, Mohanad. Really, these guys are doing the work of saints here. Snow shovels, scuba diving gear, all pulled out of that incredible garbage bag. To toothbrushes uh, floating in the ocean. Even, remember VHS tapes? There's an old VHS tape uh, box. More brushes, hair brushes, got a mannequin. It's just un unbelievable, this kind of mess. And here, just specifically, so you can tell what I'm talking about, this is where these garbage patches come in. This is from National Geographic. You'll also find the link to this in our show notes, so check this out. The Great Pacific Garbage Bag, a collection of uh, marine debris. Marine debris. It's human crap, okay? They're being politically correct. In the North Pacific Ocean, known as the Pacific Trash Vortex. You'll see the way the... Uh, the currents flow, and because of that, everything that floats out here that gets dumped from all these places, there's Japan, uh, Malaysia is over here somewhere off the map, but all of that swirls in these currents, the way the currents flow, and wind up with this, there's a eastern, this is the one we're talking about specifically now, the eastern garbage patch, and there is a western garbage patch over here south of the south southeast of japan it's just incredible two distinct collections of debris bounded by the massive north pacific subtropical gyre and it is a big problem and hats off to those folks we showed you just a little bit earlier who are doing some great work to try and clean that up it's amazing again Links are in the show notes. You want to read the whole story, the whole article, you can go over and, uh, and check that out. Uh, so we encourage you to do that so you can, uh, you can be updated. You can know what a problem we have. And you know what? If you think it's the Pacific, there's 1.8 trillion tons of this crap. I'm little old me sitting in East Bamboo, New Jersey, whatever. There's nothing I can do about it. You're wrong. Every time you throw something out, you're a part of the problem. That includes me, that includes you, that includes everybody. If you live on this little blue ball floating in space, you're part of the problem. You can start reducing the amount of plastic waste that you use, start reusing, start recycling. I know you've heard it a thousand times, but are you actually doing anything about it? You have to see pictures like this before you understand the scope of the problem. It is a problem, my friends, and it is not one that's going to go away. This article is great. You need to read this. It's from National Geographic, and it talks about this mess, and it is affecting not only the things that float on the surface of the water, but it is affecting the marine life below the surface of the water. Uh, do your part. Do what you can. And 
stop throwing your crap on the sides of the riverbanks and our waterways. We have an enormous problem with that here in Malaysia. I don't know where your mind is at that you don't think, you don't take two freaking seconds to think when you're out enjoying the waterfall, enjoying the nature, and you just take your junk and your dirty diapers and your bunkus containers and just throw them on the ground and walk away. Where's the respect? You ought to be ashamed. So, all right, enough said about that. Let's move on. Um, I saw a post from Adam Lee, a friend of mine on Facebook. It's a public post, so we're not, we're not giving away any family secrets here. But he said, I totally agree with this, lest we forget anything produced in mass that drives down the price comes with a real cost, borne not by consumers of today, but generations to come. Just think about your own health, if not the environmental impact. It's in a small way related to what I was just talking about. And it has to do with this post. There's a shop owner here, this gentleman. And is this Moroko, I think? Uh, we have a really cool... Actually, this relates to Deepavali. There'll be a lot of this being eaten this uh, in the next couple of days. Um, this is like a fried fried flowery sort of treat uh, that is very popular here in Malaysia. Uh, if I'm not, I, I don't know the history exactly of this stuff, but um, it's very tasty and really, really popular. And I believe it's called Morocco, something like that. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Anyway, uh, Jayasinth Govindarath posted this. Again, it's a public post. And he is a small shop owner. And I wanted to share this because it, it says a lot when you shop at small shops. We have, I, I live in Subang Jaya and a, a couple of little settlements over from me in 1906, uh, SS-196, we have this Indian spice shop. Just walking in that place is the most amazing experience. The smells, and these are all fresh spices in giant barrels, and it is amazing. I should take a video of this place and show it to you on the stream here. The problem is it's not smell-o-vision, because really the experience is the smell. This amazing blend of all these incredible Indian spices. I got to show you that shop. I'll, I'll try and stop by and get some video of it, and I'll bring it here on the stream. But um, but anyway, these small shops like like the spice shop is exactly what this guy is talking about. He says, I will not apologize for my pricing, and no small business should. My pricing allows me to make a profit which allows me to pay my bills, which also allows me to stay in business. My pricing allows me to employ people, which allows them to pay their bills. My pricing allows me to pay myself for the countless hours I work because I'm never truly off the clock. My pricing allows me to keep a roof over my head and food on my table. It allows me to be able to donate to charitable organizations it allows me to create a place for people to go when they need to pick up a gift. I own a small business, one where the CEO personally packs up orders, one where the CEO knows your name 
and truly cares about you. I'm not Walmart, a $500 billion company. I am not able to provide things at a lowest price, order millions of units, and still stay in business. I'm not the cheapest, but I'm also not the most expensive. My pricing is what it is to allow this small business to keep going, which allows me to make a positive impact. I will not apologize for my pricing. No small business should. Yes, exactly. Shop small businesses. Forget the Walmarts and the Tescos and the Aeons and the Lotuses or whatever they're calling it these days. Shop small businesses. And if you need any other reason besides it's the right thing to do, they have just gone through a year and a half, almost two years of hell on earth. With this lockdowns and this ridiculous pandemic, Many of them have not survived, sadly, but the ones who have fought tooth and nail and likely went hungry for quite a while and their families to be able to survive and keep their shops alive. And hopefully now with things opening up, they're back in business and you need to get your butt over their doorsteps and shop in local small businesses. Wherever you may be, I'm in Malaysia, I do that. And I encourage wherever you are, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, India, US, we've got listeners across the planet, shop locally, shop small businesses. Okay, there's some things you're going to need, you have to get somewhere else. But when you can, shop small local businesses. Cannot say it enough. I've been a big supporter of them forever. And I will continue to be. So please do your part and help out. Uh, all right. Enough about that. <laughs> Sorry, another coffee break time. Um, all right. So what we do on this show, people always ask me, what's your show about? And I always answer, it's about an hour. Um, but it's just about stuff that I find on the net that I find interesting, whether it pisses me off or whether it makes me laugh or go, hmm. Um, this one made me go, hmm. Okay, it's kind of cute, but it also kind of pees me off because I can't get an IC, but Miko can. Now, <laughs> this will be in our show notes. You can check out the whole story if you want. This is from the World of Buzz. We love World of Buzz. Thank you, guys, because you guys, you keep me in business with stuff to talk about. We love your articles. Check out worldofbuzz.com. You can now get an IC, that's an identification card, for your pet, which will be helpful if they get lost. And here is an actual picture it looks like a Malaysian IC. Uh, here in Malaysia, you can now, for 10 years, uh, Yan Cheng, who's uh, been rescuing, fostering, rehoming, and even adopting stray cats and dogs, imagine her despair when she found out that one of her rescues escaped from home and was poisoned. Um, she told World of Buzz, I thought to myself, if only he had a tag with contact that people could identify him. Uh, this wouldn't have happened. 
and it made me realize that something must be done. There she is with all of her fur friends. <laughs> uh, after some brainstorming, uh, Yan Zhang, I hope I'm saying your name right, came up with the idea of making a pet ID that resembles Malaysia's own IC cards. Uh, they come in two sizes, the owner's pet card, which is credit size, and the pet's tag, which is small enough to be hooked on a collar. You'll see, there it is right there. Check it out. That's cool. Great-looking dog, too. So you can get this now. There, oh, There's a close-up. Uh, personal pet, Malaysia identity card. <laughs> there you go. That's cool. Uh, credit card size uh, pet owner's card used as proof of ownership if somebody tries to steal your pet and can be presented at the vet for the pet's details. Small enough, the tag is small enough to hook on your pet's collar so that it will have an ID. Uh, it says the pet ID is, is not a pet license. You still need to have a license for your pet. Uh, just a pet a tag. Uh, for Malaysian pet owners, it will come in handy if pets uh, get lost or stolen. Uh, others still need to apply for, of course, their pet license from your local council. Now, I'm just scrolling through to find... Okay, if you look at the article, and again, the link is below in our show notes, there is a link here to the Paw Life Matters website. And if you click there, it will take you to that. Uh, they sell homemade pet treats, small percentage from every sale used to help strays and is donated to local pet shelters. So if you are interested in getting one of these pet IDs, I believe at the moment it's only for Malaysian uh, folks, but there is a link right here and uh, you can check out that in our story, which is again in the show notes tonight. You can uh, click on the link and head over there after the show. All right. You know... <laughs> Oh man, we did a uh, we did a story we did a story about bitter gourd cake from these great folks called the Pie King, and uh, they've done it again. Uh, the Pie King has put a post up here, and I'll tell you my experience with pie in Malaysia. I saw a pie shop. And it made me want pie, okay? Now look, I've lived here for 20 years in, in Malaysia. Almost next year will be my 20th year. But when I, as an American, think of pie, I think of apple pie, blueberry pie, lemon meringue, pumpkin pie this time of year with Thanksgiving coming. That's pie. Pie is not a meat dish. It's not chicken and beef. But of course, Malaysia used to be a British colony and British pies, while yes, they have apple pies and blueberry pies and things, British pies are also, hang on, I'll show you the picture. These things, they are savory pies with a little tart cut. Now we, in America, we have these, but we call them pot pies. So if you were to say to me, would you like a pot pie? Instantly, I think of beef and chicken, things like that. However, it says out of this world pies. Again, a little plug here for the Pie King, guys. I hope you appreciate the free publicity here. Slow cooked tender beef in traditional American style smoked hickory barbecue sauce and 100% butter pastry. 
Uh, there's a Moroccan pie. Anyway, I went into this pie shop, not this one, but a pie shop, expecting to come away with like a nice apple pie or blueberry pie or lemon meringue. And it was all these things. I was never so disappointed in my entire life. Because I'm American. We Americans don't think of pie as being beef and chicken. Those are pot pies. Oh, man. Yeah, I, you know what? I call elevators lifts now. So that's a British thing. But I just can't get my brain to wrap around a pie being savory. Pies are apple and blueberry and pecan. Oh, my favorite food on earth, pecan pie. Anyway, so yeah, I, if you're American, you go into a pie shop here, you're not going to find a lemon meringue. You're going to find this stuff. Good though they are, but it's no pecan pie. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right. Have you set your clocks back? When do we set the clocks back? I know the UK... Because I do the time check in the beginning of our stream, and it always used to be 3 p.m. in London whenever we started the stream. And now it says it's like 2.30 in London, which, which means that you guys in London must have set your clocks back. When do you set your clocks back? Is there anybody here from the U.S. who can put that in the chat? Um, daylight savings time. Oh, this Sunday, this coming Sunday... Uh, is when you set your clocks back. So why did the UK suddenly go back by an hour before everybody else? I know people in the UK are pretty whacked, but I didn't realize you were just going to be, you know, setting your clock back before everyone else sets their clock. I thought it was a worldwide thing. Anyway, it is this Sunday when you set your clocks back. And we thought we would give you this little public service announcement Courtesy of my friend Eddie from Thailand. A guide to putting your clocks back. If you have a smartphone, leave it alone. It does its own magic. If you have an oven, you'll need a master's in electronic engineering and a hammer. If you have a sundial, you just move one house to the left. And for your car radio, not worth it. Wait six months, it'll be right again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the best way to figure out how to set your clock back. Smartphone does its magic all by itself. Car radio, eh, wait six months, then it'll be right. <laughs> okay, unbelievable. All right, what else have we got here? Uh, we have our book, don't we? Yeah, it's time to get on to, uh, on to our book for the night. And uh, for that, we will pop open our images over here. And then we will head on over to H.G. Wells' original War of the Worlds. We just got a couple chapters left to go, and then we are done. So it is time to start thinking about where or what you want us to read next. Um, go to gutenberg.org gutenberg.org it's a great site full of free 
public domain books, all the classics are there. And uh, we'll, we'll give you a few suggestions on our Saturday night stream because we're almost done with The War of the Worlds. It's going to be finished um, very soon. So you hang with me and uh, we'll get through it and then uh, we will move on to yet another book. We're headed towards Christmas time, so it might be, it might be a good time to pick a Christmas story. Because that way, with all the chapters, we'll end just around the Christmas season. You know, it's only, what, maybe six, eight weeks till Christmas? Wow. Yeah. 2021, gone. All right. Here we go. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> little pup of coffee. And away we go. From originally in 1897, it's H.G. Wells' The War of the worlds. London had about gazed at me spectrally. The windows in the white houses were like the eye sockets of skulls. About me, my imagination found a thousand noiseless enemies moving. Terror seized me, a horror of my temerity. In front of me, the road became pitchy black as though it was tarred, and I saw a contorted shape lying across my pathway. I couldn't bring myself to go on. I turned down St. John's Wood Road and ran headlong from this unendurable stillness toward Kilburn. I hid from the night and the silence until long after midnight in a cabman's shelter on Harrow Road. But before the dawn, my courage returned, and while the stars were still in the sky, I turned once more towards Regent's Park. I missed my way among the streets and presently saw down a long avenue in the half-light of the early dawn the curve of Primrose Hill. On the summit, towering up to the fading stars, was a third Martian, erect and motionless like the others. An insane resolve possessed me. I would die and end it. I would save myself even the trouble of killing myself. I marched on recklessly towards this titan. And then as I drew nearer and the light grew, I saw that a multitude of black birds were circling and clustering about the hood. At that, my heart gave a bound, and I began running along the road. I hurried through the redweed that choked St. Edmund's Terrace. I waded breast-high across a torrent of water that was rushing down from the waterworks towards the Albert Road, and emerged upon the grass before the rising of the sun. Great mounds had been heaped about the crest of the hill, making a huge redoubt of it. It was the final and largest place the Martians had made and from behind these heaps there rose a thin smoke against the sky. Against the skyline an eager dog ran and disappeared. The thought that they had flashed into my mind grew real, grew credible. I felt no fear, only a wild, trembling exultation. As I ran up the hill towards the motionless monster, out of the hood hung lank shreds of brown at which the hungry birds pecked and tore. In another moment, I'd scrambled up the earthen rampart and stood upon its crest. 
and the interior of the redoubt was below me. A mighty space it was, with gigantic machines here and there within it, huge mounds of material and strange shelter places. Some in the now rigid handling machines, and a, a dozen of them stark and silent were laid in a row. Were the Martians dead? Slain by the putrefactive and diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared? Slain as the red weed was being slain? Slain after all men's devices had failed by the humblest things that God in his wisdom has put upon the earth. For it had come about that indeed, as I and many men might have foreseen, had not terror and disaster blinded our minds. These germs of disease have taken toll of humanity since the beginning of things, taken toll of our pre-human ancestors since life began here. But by virtue of this natural selection of our kind, we've developed resisting power. To no germs do we succumb without a struggle, and to many, those that cause putrefaction and dead matter, for instance, our living frames are altogether immune. But there's no bacteria in Mars. And directly these invaders arrived, directly they drank and fed, our microscopic allies began to work their overthrow. Already, when I watched them, they were irrevocably doomed dying and rotting, even as they went to and fro. It was inevitable. By the toll of a billion deaths, man has brought his birthright of the earth. And it is his against all comers. It would still be his were the Martians ten times as mighty as they are. For neither do men live nor die in vain. Here and there were scattered nearly fifty altogether. In that great gulf they'd made, overtaken by a death that must have seemed to them as incomprehensible as any death could be. To me also at that time this death was incomprehensible. All I knew was that these things that had been alive and so terrible to men were dead. For a moment, I believed that the destruction of the Sennacherib had been repeated, that God had repented and the angel of death had slain them in the night. I stood staring into the pit, and my heart lightened gloriously, even as the rising sun struck the world to fire about me with his rays. The pit was still in darkness, the mighty engines so great and wonderful in their power and complexity, so unearthly in their tortuous forms, rose weird and vague and strange out of the shadows towards the light. A multitude of dogs I could hear fought over the bodies that lay darkly in the depths of the pit far below me. Across the pit, on its further lip, flat and vast and strange, lay the great flying machines with which they had been experimenting upon our denser atmosphere when decay and death arrested them. Death had come not a day too soon. At the sound of a cawing overhead, I looked up at the huge fighting machine that would fight no more forever, 
at the tattered red shreds of flesh that dripped down upon the overturned seats on the summit of Primrose Hill. I turned and looked down the slope of the hill to where, enhallowed now in birds, stood those other two Martians that I'd seen overnight, just as death had overtaken them. The one had died even as it had been crying to its companions. Perhaps it was the last to die, and its voice had gone on perpetually until the force of its machinery was exhausted. They glittered now, harmless tripod towers of shining metal, in the brightness of the rising sun. And all about the pit, and saved as by a miracle from everlasting destruction, stretched the great mother of cities. Those who've only seen London veiled in her somber robes of smoke and scarcely imagine the naked clearness and beauty of the silent wilderness of houses. Eastward, over the blackened ruins of the Albert Terrace and the splintered spine of the church, the sun blazed dazzling in a clear sky. Here and there, some facet in the great wilderness of roofs caught the light and glared with a bright intensity. Northward were Kilburn and Hampstead, blue and crowded with houses. Westward, the great city was dimmed, and southward, beyond the Martians, the green waves of Regent's Park, the Langham Hotel, the dome of Albert Hall, the Imperial Institute, and the giant mansions of the Brompton Road came out clear, and little in the sunrise, the jagged ruins of Westminster rising hazily, hazily beyond, and far away in blue were the Surrey Hills, and the towers of the Crystal Palace glittered like two silver rods. The dome of St. Paul's was dark against the sunrise and injured. I saw for the first time by a huge gaping cavity on its western side. And as I looked at this wide expanse of houses and factories and churches, silent and abandoned, as I thought of the multitudinous hopes and efforts the innumerable hosts of lives that had gone to build this human reef, and of the swift and ruthless destruction that hung all over it, when I realized the shadow had been rolled back, and that men might still live in the streets, and this dear vast dead city of mine be once more alive and powerful, I felt a wave of emotion that was near akin to tears. The torment was over. Even that day, the healing would begin. The survivors of the people scattered over the country, leaderless, lawless, foodless, like sheep without a shepherd. The thousands who'd fled by sea would begin to return. The pulse of life growing stronger and stronger would beat again in the empty streets and pour across the vacant squares. Whatever destruction was done, the hand of the destroyer was stayed. All the gaunt wrecks, the blackened skeletons of houses that stared so dismally at the sunlit grass on the hill, would presently be echoing with the hammers of the restorers and ringing with the tapping of the trowels. 
and at the thought I extended my hand towards the sky and began thanking God. In a year, thought I, in a year, with overwhelming force came the thought of myself, of my wife, and the old life of hope and tender helpfulness that had ceased forever. All right, that is the end of that chapter, and we will pick it up again with what I believe is the, yeah, second to last chapter. So we will wrap this up in another stream or two. We will. <laughs> Miko is back because she's, uh, she's hearing the fireworks again. <laughs> ah, it's okay. No worries. She'll be fine. Okay, friends, thank you so much for joining in. Wow, we did just about an hour tonight. Appreciate it. Halfway through the work week, tomorrow public holiday for us here in Malaysia and for a bunch of you around the world. Enjoy yourselves. Have a great uh, celebration of Deepavali or Diwali or Diwali. It's referred to in a, a whole bunch of different ways. But um, either way, have a wonderful holiday. I will see you again on Saturday night. Until then, I'm Jay Sheldon. And I'm not wearing pants. Good night.